And humans do that so often. We have so many rules and we're so constantly watching each other to see who might be breaking the rules and then telling on them and trying to do something about that, that that's why you have this part of your mind, the conscious mind, whose job it is to look at what you're doing and to explain what you're doing so that you can avoid accusations of breaking rules. Right, right. That's right. what you're trying to do. Not just to spin a nice sounding story, more specifically to spin a story that has you not breaking rules. Hey everyone, I'm Luke and welcome to another episode of Exploring Kodawari. In this episode, I speak with author and intellectual Robin Hansen. Robin is an associate professor of economics at George Mason University and a research associate at the Future of Humanity Institute at Oxford University. When reading his bio, the word polymath definitely comes to mind. He has a bachelor's and master's degree in physics, a PhD in social science, and he's also researched artificial intelligence at Lockheed and NASA. But the topic of conversation for this episode centered around a recent book of his, one which he co-authored with Kevin Simler, titled The Elephant in the Brain, Hidden Motives in Everyday Life. I realized in listening back that we jumped right into the conversation without putting the book's thesis plainly out on the table. So let me quickly do that here. The elephant in the brain is a blind spot about how our minds work. As social creatures, we are wired to greatly care about what others think of us, and like all primates, political motivations play a role in so much of our behavior. Yes, if you didn't realize it, primates, like chimpanzees, use things like social grooming to behave politically. They affirm their hierarchies, establish trust, form alliances, etc. Similarly, people are constantly judging us, and we them, to find out if they will be good and unselfish allies to our group. So in this desire to look good, we often downplay our more selfish motives and amplify our more altruistic motives. And the disturbing thing is that our brain often does this unconsciously, keeping us in the dark. To quote from the book, quote, We human beings are a species that's not only capable of acting on hidden motives, we're designed to do it. Our brains are built to act in our self-interest while at the same time trying hard not to appear selfish in front of other people. And in order to throw them off the trail, our brains often keep us, our conscious minds, in the dark. The less we know of our own ugly motives, the easier it is to hide them from others. End quote. So in other words, and especially because humans are so good at detecting lies, we evolved a George Costanza-esque ability to lie to ourselves because we needed to better lie to others. Because of facial expressions, body language, etc., our thoughts are not really as private as we think. And so lying to ourselves is an evolved strategy that allows us to remain more selfish than we let on. I think it can be disturbing to sort of lift up the hood and examine these psychological findings of the human mind. It's sort of like the red pill concept from the matrix in this way. But it's also not to say that human beings are entirely selfish or lacking any genuine moral motives. It's more saying that we, along with many of our social institutions, are often acting out our secret agendas alongside the official stated ones. To give one more quote from the book. And they aren't mere mouse-sized motives scurrying around discreetly in the back recesses of our minds. These are elephant-sized motives large enough to leave footprints in national economic data. Uh, end quote. For me, the overarching lesson of the book is to have a bit more humility towards the workings of our own minds and the way it is designed to fool us and other people. 
It was Robin's book, along with other interviews I've seen of him, that inspired me to write the mental framework on our blog called The Null Hypothesis, Why We Should All Have Fewer Opinions. I'll link that article along with uh, Robin's blog and all of his links in the episode notes. All right, one last thing. If you enjoy what you hear, there's also a link in the episode notes to support us with a small one-time or monthly donation through our secure PayPal donation page. It takes a lot of time to keep this project going, so we appreciate any and all support that you can give. Either way, thanks for listening. Thanks to Robin for coming on, and enjoy the episode. All right, well, Robin Hansen, welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much for uh, making the time. Great to be here. So I usually, you know, I'll attach an intro to the podcast, giving your more standard bio. Can you give a more personal introduction to who you are and how you spend your time? I have a feeling (laughs) our audience, which is mostly classical musicians, might not have heard of Uh, you before. Well, I'm an economics professor, although I was a late to arriving at that. So I started grad school to become an economics professor in the age of 34 with two kids, age zero and two at the time. I see. And I had a four-year PhD and two-year postdoc, and then I started my job here. So before that age 34 mark, I had previously been a computer researcher at Lockheed and NASA, and I'd gotten a degree in physics and philosophy of science. And of course, now that I'm a tenured professor, I have a lot of options for uh, studying lots of interesting things, which I tend to take advantage of. Gotcha. Um, because you, you do have such a varied um, output in terms of, I mean, I first heard you on Sam Harris's podcast. Yeah. And um, I, I don't, was that in 2018-ish or so? It's not probably, yeah. Right around when the book came out. Um, and just at that time, especially with the political craziness of, I don't know, I feel like this, a lot of smart people just don't know how to process the current times and your your framework of this hidden motives in the brain and we're largely not only personally failing to act on true motives, whatever that means, but also as a society, like it, it goes to the institution level, <clears throat> institution level. And it really, um, yeah, from there, I, I read your book, obviously, and then it, it, it just kind of altered my worldview in quite a nice way, especially when it comes to political conversations and, and just anything of um, where people tend to be triggered into less than rational ways of thinking. So the origin story here is that I was a, you know, social science specialist, I became an economics professor, and I kept noticing things that were strange or didn't make so much sense from the usual point of view. I collected these and I puzzled over them. And this book is basically my best explanation for uh, most of the puzzles that I've seen over my lifetime Mm -hmm. of things that didn't make sense. Yeah. So I've been more polymathic or, or, you know, diverse than most because I, I keep going wherever the questions lead, even if they leave out of the original field I was in. And so this book is actually classified technically as psychology. Right. It was uh, reviewed by psychologists and it's been put in those sections and that sort of thing. But um, basically to me, it answers some key questions that we were puzzled by in social science. Now the book actually its main claims at the abstract level are standard psychology. Right. <laughs> that is, most psychologists say, yeah, of course we know this. So, so what's, what's new, Hanson? Right. How, how come you're just repeating stuff we already knew? Maybe you just say, cited well, all our work and made a book out of it. <laughs> right. And so to me, the novel contribution is the applications. That, that's, these are the areas in social science where we puzzle over behavior. So I think 
we have these abstract theories in psychology, but we don't actually apply them very much. Mm-hmm. We, whenever we get to a specific area, we just retreat to our usual presumptions about what's going on there, and we forget to apply the general theory that we all say we believe. Especially evolutionary psychology, which is you know so much of what <clears throat> you cite in the book. And um, I don't know, what do you think it is about evolutionary psychology that makes people uncomfortable? Well, I actually think the main conclusions are accepted by psychologists who don't accept evolutionary psychology. So I actually don't think our book is relying very heavily on evolutionary psychology. If you don't know these psychology conclusions and you want somebody to persuade you of them, <laughs> then, you know, if you're, if you're persuaded of evolutionary psychology, that'll help. Uh, and that's, you know, we, we use that sort of framing here, but a lot of psychologists who don't accept evolutionary psychology will still accept the basic idea that humans are often ignorant of their motives. Right, right. Well, uh, what's the, I don't know if it's like 95 or 99, I've seen different numbers, but that 99% of our processing happens below our awareness, it, w- it wouldn't be a far stretch to think that we don't have access to all of what our motives are from... A- oh, sure, but most people think, well, of course my mind has to do a lot more things than I can be bothered to pay attention to, but uh-huh. I'm like the CEO or president of my mind. I can go look at any one part that I want to. You know, the CEO of a company can't be tracking what every employee is doing all the time. And if they want to go see any one employee, they can just walk into their office and ask them what they're doing, and the employee will supposed to tell them, right? So that's how people think of their mind, not as that they constantly do see all the details, but that any one detail is there and available should they want to see it. Right, right. And that's what they presume. And in some sense, it's natural to presume that because that's what their mind is telling them. That is, <laughs> your mind is telling you, oh, you can see all these things. Anytime you want to, just ask. Oh, over here, we'll tell you. Right. And I think, so a big topic of our podcast is just sort of meditation and um, various psych- psychological things. And for me personally, I've been... That's why you saw me on the Sam Harris podcast. Exactly, yeah. So Sam Harris, the first book of his I read, even though he has so many other books out, was his um, guide, a Waking Up Guide to Spirituality Without Religion. And then from there, I got into meditation, and I sort of had like a, a meeting of myself, so to speak, where I, I was like, who was I previously? I felt like this asleep zombie that was certainly... Um, a main character in a book like yours, just like acting out things. And then, and then I started to notice, like I got a layer below some of the lies, at least I felt like, okay, now that I could practice the skill of sitting down for a half an hour and just watching how the mind has thoughts arise and pass away and, and little motives poke at you that, that certainly don't seem lovely or, you know, you're in the middle of a fight with your significant other. And then you're like, Ooh, I'm hungry. Let's get pizza. It's like, you realize this modularity of the mind and it has no shit. So, so I think once you see some specific hypotheses about how people could be fooling themselves, then once you look at yourself, you'll start to notice that these hypotheses do plausibly apply to yourself sometimes. Yeah. I don't think that merely looking at yourself and meditating is enough to see those things. I do think you need to have these specific hypotheses available to compare it to your behavior. True. Otherwise, you, you won't really notice that. Yeah, I think also like the meditation vibe um, combined with um, getting some of that evolutionary perspective of like not assuming I am I, but assuming I am this rough collection of modules, I think a lot of even if Actually, they I think I think this this most reliable route is to think of your rivals or even enemies and the sort of theories that come to your mind mm. about them yeah. why they do things yeah, yeah, yeah. 
as you say, you're and, really and then good. You look at the larger world, and you say, "Why do most politicians do this, or why do most bosses do this, or you know, et cetera? Why do most used car salespeople do this?" Right, right. And if you come up with the kind of explanations you would use to explain their behavior, then you might ask, "Well, how far does that go to to explain most people's behavior?" And then you should go, "Well, if it seems to explain most people's behavior, maybe it describes me too." Right. Maybe it's the a last good theory. step should be about yourself. If you if you start with yourself, your mind is just so eager to present a good view of, of of yourself to yourself that I don't think you'll see these things if you start with yourself. Start elsewhere, looking at the world or other people, especially people you have some reason to be suspicious of. Right. Explain their behavior. And then wonder how much that applies to you. Right. So you, you said just before you hinted at a, a big section of the book, or at least a section about how we're the press secretary, not the president. You used the word CEO before. Right. Um, so the concept is, well, can you just explain the concept of the press secretary and, and how that fits into what you said before? Right. So you tend to think of yourself as the president or boss of your brain. <laughs> that, you know, you, you get all the summaries and you give orders and they go off and do things. Uh, but a better view is that you are the press secretary of your mind. You're not actually in charge. You don't make the decisions. Your job is to watch what happens and be ready to defend it <laughs> should people ask questions about it. That's what the press secretary does. So if you have a press conference and people are asking about what the administration has been doing or even about what the CEO has been doing, your job, given any one question, is to ask what would be the best way to spin this? Right. How could I make this look good or at least not look bad? Right. That's what your conscious mind is. Your conscious mind was built to do it. So you, you wouldn't necessarily need a conscious mind if you didn't need this task to accomplish this task of explaining yourself to the people around you. It's the act of needing to explain yourself that forces you to organize your thoughts in terms of this narrative of what I've been doing lately and why and how about that all makes sense together. Right, right. And and uh, my, my favorite uh, imagery you put in this section was, you're not the king, you're the guy standing next to the king going, a most judicious choice, sire. And because it, right. it has that almost like um, deliberate uh, self-deception element to it. Like we do it so easily. We Smooth. It's, we are smooth. Yeah, we're so smooth. Well, of course, the guy next to the king wouldn't be the one next to the king. He couldn't do that smoothly if he was awkward about it. Yeah, that's he true. wouldn't be in that role. He, the guy there who does that is actually going to be pretty good. And he's going to be good at sounding sincere. Yeah. And and unless it's like there's some kind of backdoor, like, you know, the, he's going to betray the king. That's always the guy you hate in movies and TV shows, right? Well, we humans tend to have this norm against uh, submission to dominance, and uh -huh. that's a prime example of submission to dominance. Uh, but the key idea is that the reason we have this press secretary is that humans have norms, and a lot of our norms are expressed in terms of motives. So right. most animals just go around doing things. They cooperate with each other or they don't. Uh, even chimpanzees, they have coalitions and they have the top packed a coalition in the, in the band that's like dominating, but they don't have rules of the form. You're supposed to do this. And if you see someone not doing it, you're supposed to tell other people, and then you're supposed to get together and talk about what to do about it. That's right. more uniquely human. And humans do that so often. We have so many rules and we're so constantly watching each other to see who might be breaking the rules and then telling on them and trying to do something about that. But that's why you have this part of your mind, the conscious mind, whose job it is to look at what you're doing and to explain what you're doing so that you can avoid accusations of breaking rules. Right, right. That's right. what you're trying to do. Not just to spin a nice sounding story, more specifically to spin a story that has you not breaking rules. And see, a key part of many rules is your motive. If I hit you 
accidentally, even if I, you know, hurt you a lot and I excuse and I explain that and you believe me, then it'll be okay. So like, stop being so sloppy. So often you might say, yeah, yeah. Be more careful. But if I hit you on purpose, well, now this is a whole different problem. Right. You can't just let it go on the basis of, of my having been sloppy. You have to uh, you know, oppose this and, and take much stronger action uh, because you're not supposed to tolerate somebody hitting somebody else on purpose. Because not only did you want to hit me for some reason, but you don't care about the norm violation of hitting someone. So exactly. something must be wrong with you. Let's all point to this well, guy. We, you know. How are we going to keep this norm going if less, less we punish violations? I mean, that's the, we all know that. Right. We all know that we each have personal incentives to deviate from what the norms say to do. We all know that we keep the rules going so that we can all benefit from people behaving according to the rules, but that only works if we watch out for violations and we make sure to uh, punish them. But you bring up a, an interesting uh, potential contradiction in the book, which is if if um, we develop these norms so that we're less selfish, we have more group-oriented motives and less selfish motives, then wouldn't our brains have gradually, you know, become less intelligent because evolution tends to favor cheap um cheap things and and why would what would be the drive for intelligence if it's so, so right so the idea is if we had really good ways of enforcing norms then we wouldn't need to be so clever we could just enforce the norms and, and have people doing it so humans have these enormous brains and they're very expensive and they're very sophisticated and they aren't really needed for our external tasks like hunting or gathering or moving to another camp or things like that what we have a huge brain for is for dealing with other people. Right. So the question is now, if we're cheating each other all the time, well, then it might make sense to have a big brain to like cheat the other person and to watch out for when they cheat you. Right. But if you, we made all these rules and they were working to keep us from cheating on each other, then you might not need to be so vigilant about watching out for cheating. So we have to draw the conclusion that there is still a lot of cheating going on or a lot of, you know, breaking of rules and getting away with it even though we seem to have these rules and we're so vigilant about enforcing them. So right. the question is, how can both of those be true? How can we seem to have these rules and seem to enforce them all the time and yet have these big brains that are constantly watching out? And so the thing we have to conclude is that we are appearing to follow rules, but we are sliding by a lot. Right. We are getting away with reinterpreting the rules and, and coordinating about which rules we're going to enforce and which rules we aren't with our associates and doing a lot of complicated things to basically make sure the rules apply to other people, but not us. Sure. Yeah. As um, I think it was Robert Trivers said, right, um, we, we lie to ourselves so that we can better lie to other people. Um, and then the other concept would be that there's like this evolutionary arms race between lying successfully and detecting a lie successfully. Can you talk about like what an evolutionary arms race is and why that may be like the driver to our intelligence? Well, like we said before, a framework uh, in which you can you know, understand and predict many of these phenomena is to say, we evolved in a competitive environment where each person was trying to win out over others in terms of not only getting more food and sex and protection from the weather and, and you know, prey predators, but we also were trying to, uh, you know, attract each other as, as mates, as friends, as uh, allies. And in this whole world, we each, you know, evolution was trying out different ways to organize our brain and different sort of attitudes and priorities. And we ended up in a rough evolutionary equilibrium where 
each of us was doing roughly the thing that would make us better off Mm -hmm. relative to the other options we had. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, if you look at complicated human behavior in the light of that, you have to say all the weird things we do must make some sort of sense because they're the net result of this long arms race, this long competition by which we were each trying to get away with things when we could and trying to prevent other people from getting away with things on us. We're each trying to present a good picture of ourselves to others. And we're each trying to see a realistic picture of other people when we needed to, or see a good picture of our allies when we wanted to boost them up. Mm -hmm. That's who we are. And so the, the key idea of evolutionary psychology is to take all the weird things that people do that most animals don't do and try to understand them as the net result of some long competitive process where they are accomplishing something. They are successful at achieving something that was important, at least to our ancestors, because otherwise these capabilities wouldn't be there. We have this enormously complicated brain. We are the most successful species on the planet. So there must be something right in a lot of what we do. Right. Right. Um, the, uh, the, the, the norm violations that you were mentioning, it, it, obviously we, we, pretty strictly enforce certain norms, like the serious ones like murder or something. But it's these subtle ones like you shouldn't, um, you know, you shouldn't lie or you shouldn't brag or you shouldn't try to brown nose your boss or something. Um, We still do all those things. We just have really good... I mean, it's so funny when... It's a combination, right? So we we have fig leaves and then we coordinate not to look behind the fig leaves. Mm -hmm, But we all kind of know the leaves are there. So an example we use at the book you'll remember is... Uh, police looking at people drinking out of paper bags. Right. <laughs> so I've you know, personally done places, that in New York City. <laughs> many places have a, a law that says you can't drink alcohol in the street. Many people want to drink alcohol in the street. The police don't actually want to enforce this rule because they know that most people drinking alcohol in the street are perfectly harmless and not bothering anyone, and they'd rather enforce other rules. So the police feel obligated only to enforce the rule if it's obvious that you're breaking the rule. Mm -hmm. That's when people will complain, hey, how come you're not enforcing this rule? And so the strategy of the paper bag is to make it not obvious. Now, although what does that mean? You know, there's no question that, you know, the only time people ever drink out of paper bags in the street is when it's alcohol. I mean, why else would you, <laughs> why you leave the paper start- bag there? Right? <laughs> Otherwise, you know, when you, when you drink other things, you don't bother to put them in the paper bag. Yeah. So as a factual matter, it's obvious that people drinking out of paper bags in public are drinking alcohol, right? But it's not officially obvious. Right. We can all pretend that it's not obvious, that we couldn't be sure, and therefore the police don't have to bother you if you're drinking out of a bottle in a bag in public. So that shows you that our eagerness to enforce rules is actually often quite thin. Yeah. So there's the rule that if we see a breaking of the rule, we're supposed to enforce it. And there's a sort of a meta rule that if we see somebody else who saw our breaking of a rule and they didn't enforce it. We're supposed to complain about them. So, you know, we're all supposed to be watching out not only for people breaking rules, but for other people not complaining when other people break rules. But none of us are that eager to actually enforce all this stuff because we'd rather go about our lives. Rather eat a sandwich and watch TV. (laughs) (laughs) And so we often coordinate on pretending like we don't see things that we do see just so that we can, you know, make a bite. So, for example, imagine at a party, somebody is flirt say two married people seem to be flirting. Mm -hmm. 
okay, well, that's not supposed to happen, right? <laughs> but we can all pretend it's not happening or say, well, they're just being friendly, right? If, right? if we're asked or pushed, there's no obvious thing that really shouts flirting necessarily. Right. <laughs> Even if one of them has their hand on the other's knee, <laughs> right. you could still just say they're f- being friendly, you see. And the point is, because we don't want to enforce the rule, but if it was a rival of ours, right. if... if <laughs> If we were going up for PTA president and that was the arrival for the election for PTA president, well, now we might want to take a picture and go tell all the other people in the PTA that they don't want this person to run. So our enforcement of these rules is pretty selective depending on, you know, when we are together. So, so for example, often a way that people bond closely in a small group of people is to say things that aren't correct to each other, right? Right. In a small group, you might say things that you know that if it were quoted outside that group could get you into trouble. And you say that in the small group because you you believe that in this small group, we trust each other. And this is a way that we bond with each other by showing each other right. that we are breaking the rules here and we know the rest of you won't enforce this rule here. And that's why we can, you know, why I love you and why you love me is that we trust each other to, you know, keep this stuff on the down low. And that would be counter signaling, right? Um, If you were doing it to show that you were a friend, it would be. <laughs> and, and you might do that in part. Sure. In other um, words, like if I just met a new colleague, I'm playing a concert and, you know, freelancing and, and I've just met all these people, I would probably not act the same way as around close friends. Yet, if we went out for drinks after the concert, I really hit it off with someone and I'm talking, I would right. change my approach to be more right, from so we signaling back up to counter signaling. Signaling is when you do things to show off, mm-hmm. to show people things. That is I mean, if you think about it, almost everybody all the time when they're around each other, the things they do, they're doing with an eye to asking themselves, how will this look? Right. (laughs) They they might have a purpose. They might do X for that purpose. But they all also pause and ask, will will X make me look bad? Right. And if somehow X would make me look bad, they'll say, well, is there another way I could do this that would still achieve my purpose and not quite look so bad? Yeah. So people are always at least checking to see whether what they do makes them look bad. And sometimes they're saying, well, if I did it this way, that would make me look better. Maybe I should just do it this way. Right. (laughs) Because I want to look better. So, so that's basically what signaling is, is trying to show people things about yourself by what you say and what you do. Um, You know, this, you know, if you were completely ignoring the consequences of, of image for what you did, then you would not be signaling. You would just be doing something for some particular purpose. But to the extent you take into account how things look in what you do, you are signaling. You are choosing what you do as a way to show things off. Now, sometimes there's, there's gradations on some scale, like how friendly you are with somebody. And then what you do as a way to show that you're higher along that scale changes as you go up the scale. That's the idea of counter signaling. So right. if you have a stranger and they're just a stranger, then you just walk past them. You don't look at them. You just ignore them. <laughs> they are nothing to you. If you want to take a person who is not just a stranger and tell them, Hey, you're more than a stranger to me. <laughs> well, then you do the things you would do to a new acquaintance to show that you were liking them. You would look at them. You would watch them. You would be fr- smile at them. You would say nice things about them. You would compliment them. Right. You, you know, open the door for them. You would <laughs> just be accommodating and friendly uh, to someone who you were trying to show, Hey, you're not a stranger to me. You, you're an acquaintance. You are somebody I care something about. Right. But then if you have a very close friend who you see all the time, you, you want to show them, Hey, you're more than an acquaintance to me. Right. We aren't just people we who just met who kind of like each other and are trying to be nice to each other we're really close 
So how do you show that? Well, sometimes you, you do the opposite. You insult them, you trip them, you right. play practical jokes on them. All as a, all as a way to say, hey, we're close. You know, close people can do this. And right. Yeah. Can't. If I'm out with a colleague getting a beer and they spill it everywhere, I'd be like, oh my gosh, let's clean this up. Like, Whereas if it's my brother, I'll be like, you idiot, and just go to the bathroom and have him clean it up, right? Like, you know. Right, or you just might pour your drink on top of him too. Yeah. Double on. <laughs> Which would maybe make him mad for a second, but in the bigger picture, he'd be like, well, he's my brother. That's why he did it. It's funny. Like, we laughed about it eventually or whatever. Yeah, this counter right, Actually, thing. I just read something about, you know, teammates on a sports team mm-hmm. who often, like, cut each other down or at least try to, you know, take out the the pride yeah they, they try to make everybody not feel too arrogant about their position on the team oh yeah especially if they're getting the arrogant you put po- you put po- right, right, right down you poke them. And, then, and you and i read somebody who said well you know if they don't do to that you do that to you you're kind of sad because it means they haven't accepted you on the team yet you, you aren't one of them yet unless they are willing to bother to cut you down right uh, my brother is a firefighter in new york city and he he was telling me about some of the you know, I wouldn't use the word hazing, but I also could. Like, they, they really yeah. initiate you into that. Once you get out of the academy, they pick a firehouse right. for you. Well, if you don't have what it takes to go through that process, this is sort of like you, if you, how can they trust you if you're not willing to go through that initiation and, and sure. go through the difficulty? So, a lot of very close knit teams have to have these sorts of you know, rituals and habits in order to function as closeness teams. And I think a lot of people who have desk jobs or things like that in our world don't really appreciate what it takes to manage a close-knit team. So, for example, if you're a group of firefighters or a group of jet fighters or a group of busboys and waiters or uh, surgeons, etc., there's just a number of contexts in the world where the team has to work very closely together and they yeah. really are pushed to the edge of their limits of being able to handle it. And so they each need to be able to read each other, like how close to the edge are you? Right. <laughs> and can you still function? And so they need ways to probe each other to be able to see, are you handling this? Are you doing okay? You know, have I pushed you too hard? Right. You know, they need to read each other and quickly and, and reliably. And so they've developed a lot of methods that include insulting and hazing and things like that, that are effective ways to read each other. And sometimes we make these rules about harassment or other sorts of things for the larger world, ignoring that. And then these rules might be appropriate for a desk, again, a desk job or something where you don't actually have to coordinate very closely with your colleagues, but right. they can get in the way with these close knit teams who, who really need to function. Right. It's, it's, it's such a bonding. I mean, I've, I used to play sports pretty seriously before I went into music. And then I remember I was in high school and I went to Boston for a brass quintet chamber music summer camp thing. And so the, we all got together in a brass quintet. We just met each other. And this um, Japanese trumpet player who was in the Atlantic brass quintet, he, he coached us for about 20 minutes. He's like, do you guys know each other? Like, he didn't know if we were a preformed group or not. And we were like, no, we just kind of met. He's like, all right, you guys should just, you know, stop rehearsal now. Go out and just get beers and whatever. I was like, I'm 17, though. <laughs> He's like, well, okay, then go hang out in the park or something. Like, you're not playing together because you don't know each other. And there's that in chamber music when it's a small group of a string quartet or something like that. The more the people just have those bonding experiences, there's some unspoken togetherness that you can play with that you can't get unless you've gone through now, these rituals. Now, to this back to the theme of the book, often when we're doing these bonding exercises, if you ask people, what are you doing? They won't admit sure. bonding exercises. Yeah, yeah. They are, in fact, a hidden motive. Yeah. And they're a concrete example of how... We often have functional behavior that achieves certain ends, but when asked directly about it, we won't admit to it or we won't describe it. And in fact, consciously, we 
aren't often aren't even aware of it. Right. Don't even know that that's what we're doing. So one of the chapters in our book is about body language. Right. Right. Uh, that's the first chapter in the applications area. And that's a, an example. What you're talking about is, is close to body language. Yeah. In terms of, you know, how we directly treat each other. And people are just ignorant of what their body language is doing and why. Um, in substantial part because they want deniability. Right. You, you don't necessarily want to admit you're hazing people. Right. <laughs> uh, my, my fiance just finished a book. I'm forgetting the, the woman's name, but she was like a, a former um, Secret Service agent. And she was had this whole chapter on on how she reads people in interrogation for body language. She's like an interrogation expert. And um, that makes sense that if all of this information that we're not conscious of is slipping out in our body language, that somebody trained can can pick it out very easily. And we're like, how did they how did they know I was lying? It's like, well, <laughs> it's also that each of us can typically pick it out, but we don't pick it out consciously. Mm -hmm. So this is the interesting thing. Like we're doing all this communicating you know, sending and receiving through body language. Mm -hmm. We we are successfully communicating in great ways, but we don't consciously talk about it or even not consciously aware of it. And we would deny it. So one of the things we talk about in the book is status moves. Mm -hmm. Two people interacting together, even two close friends, they will choose a way to synchronize their motions uh, in a way that reveals which one is the higher status. I see. Yeah. They will agree on this. Their relative status movements will agree typically on which one's higher status. If they don't agree, that's an awkward conversation and they, people notice it's awkward and they, they want to run away from it because it's, it's not working. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah. When a conversation that's working that feels smooth and, and natural. That's a conversation where you've agreed on the relative status. Eve, now you might think my, this is my friend. We're the same status. There is no status between us. But in fact, you can watch movies and, and pick out the status moves and actors have to learn on screen to do status moves so that they can realistically show what people are like. Right. Uh, that's a, that's funny. Um, on, I, I got kind of, I went down a rabbit hole of this signal counter signal thing. I was thinking of a few examples, like the obvious ones are, I remember when I first got into a good youth orchestra in high school, I sat down next to the other trumpet player and they had to just slip in like, oh, I go to Juilliard. And I was like, I didn't ask you where you went to school. I said, like, who are you? <laughs> like, you know. And yeah. and obviously that's like a tail feather bragging kind of thing, yet it was just not even attempted to hide the motive, right? Then people get better at hiding it. But what about the counter signal where, you know, there's the person who when I say, Oh, Barcelona was lovely this summer, and they say, You mean Barcelona? But then I'll also do that to friends as a way to say, pretend like I was the person who would correct your pronunciation. Right, right. So you get these like, you know what kayfabe is? The, the wrestling like layers of lies. Like it's the whole wrestling thing is fake, but then there's some real elements that slip in, but you don't know where's the real, right. where's the fake. Am I counter signaling that I'm the smart person who right. would, wouldn't so, act like that? <laughs> I think a lot of our listeners at the moment will be nodding and saying, this doesn't sound very radical. This sounds like things I sort of already believed. And mm -hmm. see, the problem is they haven't tried to apply this to other areas of life. So that's right. where this will get to be uncomfortable for people. So we start to take it to things where you didn't realize <laughs> right. that these sorts of principles still apply. So, so for example, this is conversation. We are doing conversation right now, right? right. <laughs> and if you ask people, well, why do you have conversations like this? Uh, they'll sort of shrug and think, isn't it obvious? Well, it's kind of fun and I've got some free time and, you know, and if you really push them on, yeah, yeah, but why are you talking? The thing they'll most likely come up with is, well, we're exchanging information. Right. 
I know some things and the other person knows things. And if we talk for a while, then we each learn some of the things the other person knows. And that's what conversation is. It's a, an exchange of information. And that all feels very comfortable and pro-social and everything. Yeah. <laughs> but it just doesn't fit very well with what's actually going on. So if you're really exchanging information, then first of all, you would keep track of debts. You'd say, I've told you three useful things so far. You've only told me one. It's your turn. I'm going to sit back and, and hear you say more things. Right. You would be much more eager to listen than to talk. You would just want to sit there and listen to all sorts of useful things other people were telling you, and then they'd have to kick you and say, it's your turn. Right. And we talk about important things. We talk about things that mattered a lot to us because the whole point of information is to be useful and valuable. And so we would talk about the things that most matter to us. Yeah. But we often talk about pretty trivial things and we seem to go out of our way to talk about trivial things. Yeah. I, I wrote a bullet point on my notes here, like when I was preparing them last night and I was like, wait, is this, is there like a meta podcast point from this book that like, I'm just doing this to show off like, oh gosh. And then no, no, of yeah. course not. You know. <laughs> <laughs> so if we stand back, we don't ask about ourselves first. We talk about other people, especially those other show offs out there. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we can say that conversation looks more like showing off your mental backpack of tools and resources. Sure. So the game is a conversation goes along. Neither of us is supposed to control the conversation very strongly. It's fine if it talks about trivial things, but wherever it goes, your job is to pick something out of your backpack that's shiny and nice and make it relate and show somebody that you have useful resources related to whatever comes up. Yeah. That's a hard challenge, but if you can do it, it means you're a good ally to have. Somebody with a backpack like that around you know, whatever we're doing, they'll be able to pull something out of it and it'll be useful. Yeah. So that's the game of conversation here. And you can see it also happens in media conversations and even in academic conversations. They have the same sort of fashion thing where the conversation is just on some topic at the moment. And it's not necessarily the most important topic, but the rule is you have to talk about what everybody else is talking about. You're not allowed to just change the subject. Yeah. Well, I read this book yesterday. It's like, <laughs> well, that wasn't the topic. That's not impressive. <laughs> Right. So your job is to even, you know, so even people who write policy papers, they say there's no point in releasing a policy paper on a topic that hasn't been in the news in the last two, two weeks. Yeah. Yeah. Nobody wants to hear about it just because you know how to fix the military. Well, if we haven't been talking about the military, then shut up about your military fix. Yeah. Yeah. We've been talking about medicine or whatever it is. Yeah. And show so, off you know, and have a grand theory that. about that. Yeah, exactly. Right. And so, you know, that helps explain a lot of our conversations to each other, but it's not as pleasant a theory because it basically has us showing off. Right. Um, so I do want to get to what you hinted at before, which is the, all this personal level stuff. It can make people uncomfortable. Certainly I would say, you Absolutely. know, <laughs> uncomfortable things often have rewards later on, but so we'll get into the institutional level. There's the personal level, the institutional level, but can we just have a quick note of like self-improvement wise? Do you think this is something most people can find improvement well, from or? So our main purpose in writing this book is, as I said, that we social scientists have just been going wrong. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and I want social scientists and policy experts to actually understand what people are really doing so that they can you know, do social science and policy better. That's the yeah. main audience and, and purpose for writing the book. Uh, that it's, of course, also useful to anybody else who actually wants to understand what's really going on. But the warning here is you were built not to understand this. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you were built to be blind to this, to not see this. That's evolution made the gamble that you were better off not knowing these things because these are about very basic things. And if evolution wanted you to know, it would be pretty easy for you to already know because it's about what you're doing and why. Right. So if you don't know what you're doing and why, that's because evolution didn't want you to see what you're doing and why. Right. So 
that's the warning that is if evolution is right about your situation and your you know, values and priorities, then you shouldn't know this stuff. Sure. This is going to hurt you. And it's going to hurt you directly in the sense of it's going to be hardest to sincerely pretend all these things you're pretending all the time that aren't true. But I, which you thought you were true about, you were being honest about, but now you'll realize you're not. Well, it's sort of like a lot of dead wood has to burn away. And I feel like you can try to build a reset a little bit if you say, okay, here are the things I started noticing I'm doing, I'm posturing this way. So, so again, if we start to work at it, we can come up with justifications and rationales for why reading our book might not be such a terrible thing. And, and that's fine to do that and let's do that. But pause and notice the basic fact is evolution built you not to know this stuff. <laughs> and so whatever these rationales are, they'll have to be exceptions or deviations from what evolution was expecting. Sure. But there are several of them. So one of them is if you're a manager or salesperson, someone for whom your job means you need to understand what people are doing and why much more than most people do, because that's central to your role yeah. in the world. Uh, and so, or you're a social scientist or a policymaker. This is the center of your world that you need to understand this because otherwise you will just go completely wrong in what you're doing. Right. In addition, you might be a nerd like me. <laughs> that is someone whose basic social skills aren't as good as other people's. You know, most people glide through the social world doing the right thing because their intuition tells them the right thing to do. And they don't need to understand why they're doing the right thing or that it is the right thing or that it's lying, <laughs> that they're lying about their motives. They just do things and say things and it all feels right and goes right. But if you're more of a nerd, that's not happening so much for you. Sure. Yeah. Like <laughs> so you're not keeping you, conversational debts <laughs> if you're just like, oh, we're having a conversation. It's like, yeah. are you? <laughs> but if you're more of a nerd and you aren't just naturally good at this, then being more conscious about it could pay off. You could consciously think about this stuff and then be able to sort of know, you know, if somebody asks you, do I look fat in this dress <laughs> to go, this isn't a question about the dress. This is a question of, are you willing to support me here? Right. And once yeah. you see that question, then you, you might answer that question and not the question you thought you heard. Actually, I remember Sam Harris uses that example in his book, Lying, where he says, well, there's always a subtext or sometimes a subtext. So when your wife says, do I look fat in this dress? She's really asking another question, Right is it lying to say no? Like, you know, so he, he poses a few difficulties where subtext can change whether you're lying or not, you know. it's Well, you could tell yourself you're not lying if you're really talking to the subtext, but of course, literally you're lying if if, sure. if the literal claim is, it's a literal question is getting a literal answer. <laughs> if you, because if, it won't work to say, honey, I know what you're really asking is. <laughs> <laughs> well, because maybe, maybe in her mind, she doesn't know what her own subtext is, right? Because the, the motive... Or maybe the point is you have to go along with the game, even if she does know. So it's more of a power dynamic kind of thing? Or not or, power, or just but a just... Play, you know, go along with... So, so for example, <clears throat> you know, if, if, if it's in public and there's an audience, she, she might want to know that if, if there's a certain way you're supposed to say things in order to flatter her or other people around that you know how to play the flat, that flattery game and you'll do it right. Right. Uh, you, you know, somebody who's constantly honest everywhere is often a liability. Like Larry David. <laughs> Do you watch Curb Your Enthusiasm by chance? I have watched it. I have watched it lately, uh, but sure. So uh, I was writing down, so let's get into the institutional level, like some of the data you you noticed that these hidden motives aren't just personal, but they, they're in these big, giant areas of society, like politics, religion, art, charity. So in the charity aspect, it made me think of an episode of Curb Your Enthusiasm where Larry donates a hospital wing 
and he has this big plaque put up donated by Larry David and they're at this you know charity event having champagne and then he sees the other wing was donated by Anonymous and then his wife Cheryl goes you know I know who Anonymous is it's Ted Danson and he goes what and then he goes around and he starts asking he finds out everybody there knows Ted Danson donated the hospital right. wing and he goes right. If I knew I could <clears throat> be anonymous but still tell everyone, of course I would choose that one. And so everybody's like, oh, you know, Larry, thanks for donating. But, you know, and they gesture at Ted, you know, he, he's really <laughs> generous. So it's because he was willing to be anonymous. <laughs> right, willing to be anonymous. It's like, no, you're not anonymous if you also tell people. But it worked, right? And I, I know it. Well, that is, that is sort of the way in which people are willing to pretend to follow the rules but actually not follow the rules, right? Yeah. So if somebody is, you know, gaining attention for their generosity. That's breaking the rules. You're supposed to be generous for the reason to just want to help, not because you're just trying to gain attention for your generosity. Right. But of course, in that case, Ted Danson is supposedly <laughs> uh, giving to not just help, but to gain the attention. And he is gaining the attention, but people are willing to pretend that he's not getting the attention because they look at the word, well, says anonymous, I guess he's not getting attention, right? <laughs> Yeah, it's and of course, Curb Your Enthusiasm dramatizes it, so it's super obvious and frustrating for Larry. Um, can you but talk? Usually, about it's less obvious, and then, so in some sense, you know, one of the markers is: do children see or not know? Yeah. So often, if adults basically see but children don't see, then adults can pretend they don't see either. Sure. Because it's about like, does everybody see? And you know, then there people vary in their social perception and their sincerity and things like that. So as long as there's like smart, sincere nerds who don't get it, then other people can pretend and they can, you know, continue because they know, well, some people don't get this. Some people don't see this. Yeah. So we are pretending for somebody. Right. Can you talk about the, the data on charity that, that shows that although we might have the motive somewhere of helping people and being altruistic, that that's probably not the main motive behind why people donate to charity? Well, of course, even for the word anonymous, most donations are not anonymous. Sure. Most people aren't even willing to do the pretend anonymous. And of course, <laughs> as we most know, most people who give anonymously, their friends and family know. Right. They, they've passed the word around, so they're still getting credit from somebody. Right. Or they let but, it slip out, you know, <laughs> in right. a further deceiving signal. Right. But, but in addition, we're not very attentive to how effective our charity is. So, Mm. There's, for example, a, a movement recently called effective altruism, whereby people are trying to like calculate and figure out which kind of charity is actually effective. And it turns out other people find that suspicious and creepy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Isn't that weird? It's like you're just trying to do like uh, the Against Malaria Foundation. I know William McCatskill like made that to my attention when he went on um, Sam's podcast. And it, it's weird that people don't like when you calculate. They want to know that you just donated out of like well, a, a gut feeling. It's weird feeling. if you think about the thing they say they're trying to do. Sure. But again, with the theme of the book, once you see what they're actually trying to do, it makes more sense. And they're so, actually signaling like, hey, look, I'm a generous person. It's more that they have a generous heart. Mm -hmm. So um, we sometimes might need help. And we would like to think that the people around us, if we needed help, would help us. Mm -hmm. So we want to see that they are the sort of person that when they see someone right in front of them in need, they can't but help feeling sympathetic and generous to those people. Yeah. But that requires that they help the people in front of them in need. If they sit down in their desk and calculate who in the universe ever most needs their help and help those people instead of the people around them, 
then the people around them are not very reassured that they would get help if they needed it. So we don't actually want the people around us to help the people in the universe who most need help. (laughs) We want them to have a kind heart or a generous heart, which if we were in need in front of them, if we were on the phone, tears in our eyes or whatever it was, crying about the terrible thing that had happened to us, that they would feel sympathetic and then they would help us, who is not likely to be the people in the world who most need help. Right. I think it what was it like three thousand dollars or something like that at at the time you wrote the book um, or the time it, I forget the year but it saves one life for this uh, against malaria foundation but where, one stranger's life sure not the people around you who want you to help them and if your friend you know lost his job and and needed help you would be more likely to give a couple thousand dollars to them to to get back on their feet than to think right. a random we have a life couple of someone more I've never met in the book so what, one is about. Uh, helping the future as opposed to now people, you know, you could, if you could help the future by like investing and saving and then because it, most investment grows faster than the economy, you'll have a disproportionate effect, impact on the future. But most people oh, interesting. aren't really very excited by that because uh, they don't get much credit if they save to help people in the future. They, they want to get credit for helping people right now. And we also talk about marginal charity where you just adjust your behavior a little bit in ways that are hard for other people to see, but it turns out the cost benefit ratio there can be astronomical. <laughs> right. Where you just adjust your behavior a little bit to be more pro-social. And, you know, that's very effective charity, but it's not visible charity. So people want to do some things that are visible. Right. I mean, it, it, the, the, it's disturbing because it, it's like, oh my gosh, this, this understandable, like, you know, small bands of 50 people that evolved hunter gatherers. Like, of course we would have, some of these things, but that it it worked its way all the way up to the institutional level where we tell each other <clears throat> we tell each other these lies that we all believe, and I don't know. It so just this feels- is the key problem when when we lie in a way that it's in our interest to lie and somebody else's interest that we don't. We are much more attentive to catching those lies, <clears throat> but when we all want to make the same lie, yeah, then we go along with other people's lies because they support our lies, and so. We can all just lie in the same direction together over and over again, and none of us are, in, you know, bothered to notice or call it out. Right. And so that's why, in so many areas of our life, we are just lying together about why we do big, important things like education and medicine and politics and charity, yeah. and conversation and you know, body language, etc. It's because we're all wanting to ignore the same things. You're right. So for people who want to um, check out this book, the the second half basically goes through all these areas. We obviously won't get to all of them in, in detail, but the other one that really affected me was politics, just because I feel like it's for anyone that tries to approach life with more of a bird's eye view of their mind of, of the situation and not get so caught up in it, it seems extra hard these days in, <coughs> in politics, especially, and so the standard story is like you believe what you believe because you want outcomes and you want to affect this change. But is that the real story for politics or is there something else going on? So it's not just that you want outcomes, but that you are trying to be a what we call it like a Dudley Do-Right for the outcomes. You're trying <laughs> to help other people all have good outcomes. Yeah. So, you know, if you were just trying to get some tax bill passed because it's going to lower your tax rates, well, that would be doing politics for outcomes. But most people don't <laughs> present themselves as doing that. Right. They're not just trying to grab some personal benefit. If, if the teachers are trying to pass a bill to get ahead of the vaccine queue, well, it's not because the teachers just want to be vaccinated. They're, they're, they care about the kids, you know. Right. And it's about <laughs> helping the kids. Right. And so, uh, 
the presentation that we all make is that the reason we're involved in politics and the reason that we do things there and what we care about is sort of helping the city or the state or the nation or the world to get better outcomes. Right. And we say that that's what you pretend to be, but what you're more like is an apparatchik. This was a name for an old Soviet politician or bureaucrat who, you know, was afraid of break, you know, violating the party line and was making sure to seem very loyal. And a story we give in the book is that once upon a time when Stalin was the leader of the Soviet Union, uh, there was a meeting where Stalin was not present, but everybody was very eager to show their loyalty and support for Stalin because he was killing people who didn't. And so at one point in one meeting, the, the name Stalin came up and at the mention of his name, the entire room stood up and started clapping loudly. Yay, Stalin. Right. And they continued for 10 minutes. Now, near the end of this 10 minutes, each of them is asking, is it time to stop yet? Are we going to keep clapping for Stalin? Mm-hmm. And they each ask themselves, well, if I'm the first one to stop, won't that look kind of bad about me? Yeah. And so eventually somebody was the first person to stop. And then they all, the rest of them stop quickly and then whew, they're done. And then that person went to Siberia that night. Which is crazy. It's, it means that I, w- I just got tired of clapping. But really what it means is I was willing to... to. I was the least loyal person in the room. And from Stalin's point of view, even if he doesn't, he thought you did it randomly, if he's trying to show his power and show that he is going to punish people who aren't overtly loyal to them, then he still needs to punish that person, regardless yeah. of what he privately believes. And so the idea is the rest of us don't have quite such strong payoffs, but the rest of us do have relatively strong payoffs from the people around us believing that we are loyal to our political allies. Right. So it it turns out that people actually care strongly that their children marry people who share their politics. Right. People are more willing to give out scholarships to people who uh, share their politics. We actually want our friends to share our politics. We care a lot that the people around us share our political views and stances. That's a strong incentive then to have political views and stances that are compatible with the people around you. Now, often you'll have multiple groups you're around and they will have differing things they want you to be. And then you can have to pick some compromise between being consistent <laughs> and therefore right. not being optimistic in the context or changing your mind every time you talk to a new group, which is, of course, what politicians were often famous for before they were recorded all the time. And you could check what they said in one place against another. Right. But then you're a flip-flopper, right? We have all these labels for, for well, if things. people find out about it, yeah. <laughs> but um, it, it's it's that you cite so much data of like, well, if, if you were really voting for outcome or you were voicing your opinion to have some kind of outcome, then why is all this data not showing that? And it's so it, would it be safe to say that most of what people do in the political arena is more about loyalty signaling then? Well, of course. I mean, <laughs> but of course, much of what people do in ordinary corporate politics sure. is about loyalty signaling or, too, but they don't talk about it in those terms, right? So if we're having an argument about whether there's, there should be a bigger, you know, marketing budget or whether this project marketing should be forced to be rechanged, you know, all our words are going to be primarily in terms of the product and the marketing budget and the marketing and the mistakes. But the subtext is going to be about the different political factions we're part of and whether we're supporting our factions. Right. And similarly in politics, we are going to talk about whether the nation needs to get over the COVID lockdown or whether you know, the, the death rate is, is way too high and we couldn't possibly do that. But the subtext will be about 
what, who are our political allies and what do they think and will they think we're supporting them by what we say. That's why I was so fascinated with the whole mask phenomena to see how it, like there was a, a moment in the beginning about a year ago now, this is March, 2021. So a year ago, it was unclear how masks were going to be politicized. Um, well, it was clear initially that the experts had their previous stance, which is that expert masks weren't a big deal and they, they shouldn't be overemphasized. <laughs> the right. experts also had this thing that travel restrictions were also not a good idea and shouldn't be overemphasized. And then, Interestingly, a lot of elites got together and talked about that and said, no, 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 uh, travel restrictions make sense and masks make sense. Right. They set out the word and all the experts suddenly changed their mind to, uh, to adopt what the elites uh, said. I think that, uh, that the was the beginning said. of me uh, when I sort of reconnected to your book and wondering, like, how much institutional rot, like, if, if how much, how many of these lies have made, I don't know, the fact that they, they told us the science definitely says masks aren't useful. The Surgeon General said this, you know, yeah. uh, Fauci said this. And then suddenly they switched without any explanation for why they switched. They almost admitted that they lied to us because... They did, in, in essence, admit that they lied, but in some sense, you know, people didn't care. Yeah, it just kind of slipped under the radar. I mean, obviously, the media is complicit in not making that, like, the headline story. Like, they flip-flopped on the science. Can we trust science? It's like... If you're not someone who reads a lot of science, then you kind of just rely on whether the experts tell you this or that. And if they flip-flop... Well, again, the most fundamental thing is each of us wants to take the position that our side is taking. Right. So if our side is pro-mask, then we want to be pro-mask. And if our side previously was anti-mask, and that looks embarrassing for us, then we don't want to point that out. Sure. Yeah, so the <laughs> other side is always happy to point out your contradictions, but you're never going right, to Right, but you can ignore own. when they point that out. If, if you control the media, say, or what, what people are saying, then you can just, you know, slip past something and ignore, a, a, you know, something that's an awkward point that the other side can make. Yeah. And it's interesting, like, so my fiance, who's normally uh, joining us, she's recording something today, though. Um, so she's from Turkey. She came here about five years ago. And it's just funny to get an inside um, view of Turkish politics, you know, reading it in Turkish and having her family tell us stuff and versus here and to see how certain issues are, are you know, kind of propagate through right. society differently there. And masks were not politicized at all there. It's just like wear a mask. Of course, people are lazy about it. You know, it's like hanging down right. below their nose right, right. or whatever. But it's not like if you wear a mask, it's a signal. Whereas I feel like here, if I walked into a convenience store like a month ago, just accidentally forgot to put on my mask. And then all of a sudden I felt like I was naked, like those dreams where, <laughs> yeah. like, you know, because I know of what a signal, like somebody would just immediately assume I'm some right-wing nut. But meanwhile, it's just like in my pocket, like, give me a right. second, hold on. <laughs> so, so the pandemic exasperates this because, you know, in a pandemic, like in any crisis, it's a shared crisis. We socialize it that is you know, it does have social elements in the way sense that the way some people deal with it affects how other people's outcomes are. Mm -hmm. So in a crisis that's seen as a social thing, then we want basically every society wants to form a consensus about what we should all be doing and then each be doing the thing we're supposed to be doing so that we can all show that we're showing our support for dealing with the crisis. Yeah. And that's why often, you know, we each aren't that picky about what the thing we all do is. <laughs> Yeah, uh, but we're more picky that we show our allegiance to the thing we're all supposed to doing, and then of course showing our allegiance to enforcing the thing we're all supposed to do. So, but different societies in different contexts will just pick different things. Mm -hmm. That is the thing you're supposed to be doing. Yeah, you see, and that's that's the thing that will it varies around the world in the, in the pandemic, and it varies through history. And 
But in any one place, in any one crisis, you know, you, you have to kind of pretend that, you know, we're, we're sure that this is the right thing to be doing. Yeah. Even if other people in other places and times do other things, we, we all know this is the thing to do. I mean, I'm showing my loyalty to us in doing the thing you're supposed to do here. And people who say, no, the thing we're all saying we're supposed to be doing is wrong are seen as not loyal to us. Right. No matter even what. Even if they're right, of course, even if they yeah. offer evidence, all the more reason if they offer evidence, like you, you were just supposed to hear my rebuttal my you know disapproval of you and stop and be ashamed and, and go hide you weren't supposed to come back with more arguments that's just showing more defiance yeah and like again i get that on the personal level it makes sense i've seen that my whole life where people you know in arguments personally showing data <clears throat> rarely is the thing that changes someone's mind but you would think at the institutional level that we would be able to you know design these things to to spot you know lies that or outcomes that aren't doing what we say we're doing whether it's charity and not being so effective that's the or key thing to know about our institutions they are not that much designed to overcome our individual faults mm. <laughs> they're designed to support them and, and exasperate them even so 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 one thing say every place in the world probably individuals spend too much time and effort showing off how good they are at sports and music, say, to pick two things you show off, yeah. right? <laughs> so, you know, I show off being an intellectual, right? And, and yeah. right. So the world just does too much showing off. And so if our institutions were going to fix that problem, it would just want to tax and discourage all this showing off. It would tax uh -huh. and discourage athletes. It would tax and discourage musicians or even intellectuals. It would allow some of them, and it just wouldn't allow as many of them as people are inclined to have. Yeah. But what most local governments actually do is they subsidize these things. Yeah. <laughs> because what they want is for their local area to look good compared to other areas. We have the best athletes. We have the best musicians. We have the best intellectuals. Mm -hmm. So each city, state, nation, continent is subsidizing these things to, to make them look good. So this is a concrete example of how you see this tendency of individuals to go wrong and then the institutions crank it up and make it stronger. Right. They don't try to damp it down and reduce it because the institutions are, and in some sense, responding to the individuals. <laughs> I try to show off that I'm a good musician and I try to show off that I'm in a state with good musicians and I do that in part by voting for politicians who will subsidize music in my state and I can tell other people, not only do I support music, I support our state having better music because I support subsidizing music here. Yeah. And, um, it, those institutions are supporting my individual showing off um, my support for music individually and my support for our music. Yeah, that's, I mean, what, what do we do about it? <laughs> I mean, I'm sure if well, you had that answer. It's hard. So, but the first step is just to know what's going on. Yeah, that's true. So the elephant in the brain is primarily just telling you what's going on. And then at the end, we do discuss how this changes the institution design problem. Yeah. So, you know, a lot of my life as a economist, I've been thinking about institution design, how you could redesign institutions. And we have many insights into existing institutions and many ideas for reform. But the problem is, we have usually been doing institution design where we take the stated assumption of an institution, like say that schools are to help people learn material. Right. And then we try to design reforms that increase that outcome, the stated outcome that we claim we want. And then we tend to find that people are not interested in our reforms and they can't <laughs> be bothered to try them or even support them. Yeah. And we're puzzled. We say, well, you, you say you want schools that help people learn material. And here is a reform that does help students learn more material. And there are actually many reforms of that sort in the, in the literature on, on educational reforms. We know of many ways actually to help students learn more material at school. 
Right. A lot of things that actually just work quite reliably, but people are not interested in them. And we'd say the reason is because they know at some level that it's not really what it's about. Because School is about, more about showing off yeah. <laughs> our smart conformity and conscientiousness, things like that. And schools do a good job of that. And it's important to also say, like, it's not like the things that we know are valuable in certain things. It's not that those valuable things aren't there at all. It's just if, they, if they were the primary motives, we would see different outcomes. So when you say, when a kid says, the dog ate my homework, <laughs> that could work as an excuse if people want to let them have it as an excuse, because sometimes dogs do eat homework. Yeah. The dragon ate my homework doesn't work. <laughs> Because nobody believes dragons ever eat homework. So yeah. for all these excuses we, we have, they are excuses that work exactly because sometimes they are true. Right. <laughs> but they are excuses because they are true a lot less often than we pretend. <laughs> That's funny. I was just in a rehearsal a couple of weeks ago when, and this um, famous conductor, M Michael Tielson Thomas, was coaching us through the Zoom screen or whatever. He's like, I'm really embarrassed to say I don't have the score for this piece to help you guys because I just got this puppy and the puppy chewed it all up. <laughs> And we were like, huh? The dog really ate your homework. Okay. And then but I it, also it just... can happen sometimes. I just realized I said the word famous before his name as a signal, probably. <laughs> well, why not? Down the rabbit so, hole. But, <laughs> so say with respect to education, uh -huh. once we realize that education is more about showing off and less about learning the material, then to do educational reform, we require more constraints to be satisfied. So we need to find a new way to do education that lets people continue to pretend that they're learning material because that's the thing they want to keep, that they want to pretend, but also gives them more of the thing they actually want. Now, mm -hmm. the, when we're adding more constraints, it makes it harder to find things that satisfy all those constraints, but it's not impossible. Right. And so that's how we change the institution design problem is by realizing that in addition to letting people pretend to achieve the thing they're pretending to, to get, we need to actually give them more of the things they actually want. Right. Which means letting them in school actually show off being smarter and more conscientious and conformist because that's what schools let them actually do. So all those constraints just will force more creative solutions. I love the idea of constrained creativity. Like it, it you know, that's what we, you talk about in the art chapter. Right. It's the constraints itself that right. make art but, so, so valuable. So when you find a solution like this, you can't be honest and direct about why it's a good, better solution. <laughs> oh, I see. <laughs> So that's part of the constraint is, again, there's the thing people pretend to want and the thing they really want. And you'll have to go along with them pretending that they want the thing they pretend they want. And you'll have to talk in those terms when you try to justify and, and give reasons for why it's a better alternative. But you'll somehow have to hint and indicate that they're actually be getting more of the things they actually want so that they actually want it. But then how many people who are designing these institutional things is, or is it yet another constraint to know that like the original creators of a certain institution will pass on and die. And then will the, won't the institution just follow the stated well, goals? So we're, I, we're thinking more generally of, of institutions at the larger level, like how we run schools and how we mm -hmm. run hospitals and the contracts people have with schools and the contract, you know, as opposed to this particular school as an institution, or this yeah. particular hospital. But even at that level, you know, we just have whole fields of people who specialize in thinking about how schools should be organized and how hospitals should be organized, et cetera. So there are many people for whom that's their job to think about how to structure these things. Now, but part of the problem is if you're, say, an education researcher, you're getting money from people who are paying you to make schools that help people learn more material. Mm -hmm. Even if you know that's not what schools are actually for, even in your research, you'll still have to pretend that that's what people want. Yeah. 
as part of the research you're doing. So you'll have to figure out what actually works and what people actually want while still talking to, at least to your research funding audience as if, you know, people were being honest about these things. Sure. Yeah. Well, as you. So it makes it harder, but not impossible. So it's, we should still be able to do better than we've been doing once we take these constraints seriously and actually work them through. As you say in the in the beginning of the book, it's sort of like the red pill from the matrix, you know, on the personal level, but also like to admit some of these things that we have so much personal pride in, like where we went to school or what orchestra we're associated with or any of these things. When we find out what's really going on, it kind of, you know, again, it doesn't ruin all the value, but it takes away some of the, the, the good butterfly feelings of whatever we're doing when we know there's a, a lot of other things happening under the surface. So humans are not the angels they pretend. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and each of us is not the angel we pretend. And so looking at any one wing that we thought we had that was nice and white and silvery and shiny and realizing that's not actually our angel wing <laughs> is, is a letdown. Yeah. But we want to be clear, we still think humans are by far the most interesting creatures around and we love humans. And so humans even not being what they pretend, they're still people we are and like. And so you can still want to be around humans and celebrate humanity and, and our progress and, and all the things we have and will do. Yeah. Even if you also know that we exaggerate our angelity. Yeah. Yeah. It's an interesting, I mean, I personally found it helpful. I don't, I don't know if everybody will, but the book is the elephant in the brain and um, highly recommend picking it up at the very least start reading it. And if you start to freak out, I guess you can put it down. <laughs> But I, if for certain areas of interest, like for me, art, I felt myself a little bit like, hey, what are you doing? You're ruining this thing I do. But well, that's, <laughs> yes. So, so for each of us, we have some areas of our life that are more precious and sacred to us than yeah, others. Yeah, exactly. So if, if medicine isn't central to your life, you'll think, yeah, our theory about medicine is probably plausible. But <laughs> if you're a nurse or doctor, like medicine is sacred to you because once upon a time your aunt was saved, her life was saved by a heroic doctor, then you will be more uncomfortable with sort of deflating medicine. Yeah. Similarly, if education is your thing, you're a teacher, or you're really proud of your degrees, Yeah. then you will find it hard. And Or if art is your thing, then you will find it hard to sort of... Do you know what really shifted my mind was the, um, what is it, the Bowerbirds? Uh, yeah. <laughs> they write, you should Google this, anybody who hasn't heard of Bowerbirds. They build these elaborate, like, mating ritual, yeah. like, designs Pretty. and... All sculptures, sculptures, and bl they get blue, um, you know, pebbles, beetles, or even bottle caps because blue is rare in nature, and all of this is a signal of like, hey, look, I have all this free time on my hand. I can waste resources building all this stuff. And and perception, discretion, you know, discernment, right? You know, yeah, they can figure out wh which blue thing looks best and where to place it, right? Yeah, and you know, so in art, in both ends, right, the artist and the art admirer both need this sort of discernment. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. And, and they're both proud of their discernment and their ability, and they brag about their discernment. Well, to have and, discernment means you had time to learn that discernment, right? Well, you also have the innate ability to learn the discernment. Some mm -hmm. people might never learn it, even if they had plenty of time. Right, right. Interesting. Well, thanks so much for coming on. Uh, I, I love for having me. getting a, a first person, you know, kind of uh, insight and, into the know, book. I have to honest, I like music. <laughs> I'm, I'm glad music is out there. On the margin, then we might have enough musicians. That is, if we only had half as many musicians as we do, I'm not sure the music I listen to would be perceptibly different. Right. <laughs> well, sometimes... <laughs> but I'm glad music exists. Like, you, uh, you mentioned Bach in the book, and that was the first time I felt like a defense mechanism going on, because I love <laughs> Bach. I play Bach all the time. And, yeah, it's uh, great. 
And, and so I, part of me enjoying Bach is to believe he genuinely was creating music to the glory of God. And to think that there are these other motives, you know, it does, it can ruin it a little bit, but it, it still is what it is. The piece that he made right. is a self-contained, beautiful thing. Even So I'll, I'll leave you with one last observation. I think we each have a limited budget for honesty. Ah, uh-huh, interesting. If you just decide to go figure out everything you're dishonest about and slap yourself for each one of them and, and vow to never be dishonest again, I don't think that'll work well. Yeah. <laughs> I think you should ask yourself, what is your contribution to the world? What What is the most important areas that you care about and that honesty might be the most useful to you? And maybe try to be honest about those things and let the other things slide. <laughs> I love that. An honesty budget. Yeah, because otherwise you'll drive yourself crazy and not. You weren't built to be this. Again, evolution built you over a long time and you're a, this complicated creature and you were built to sort of not be aware of these things. You can twist yourself somewhat to look around at a thing you weren't built to see. You know, you can't really see your back, but maybe some people can twist themselves uh-huh. around far enough they can see their back. And that's not a natural position. But if you hold yourself there in the right angle, maybe you can see your back. But that's work. Yeah. <laughs> it's effort. <laughs> and you don't have to do that for everything, right? To see the behind your elbow, say, or et cetera. Right. <laughs> Pick what the thing that's most important for you to see clearly on and, and see that. It's almost like the effect of altruism. If you, like you said in the book at some point, if you donate to every charity and spread out your investments, right. you're less effective than if you spend your time finding the narrow Find the one area. most effective thing that you know the most about and understand the best and just focus on exactly. that. Exactly. Oh, well, that's good advice. I like that honesty budget. I was telling my fiance about this at dinner the other night, like the concept of the book and she was like, not sure if she was able to join for this episode. And she, I could just tell, like, she was like, ugh, like, ugh, like, and then um, I think the honesty budget thing will be a nice, like, in other words, choose one yeah. chapter from the second half of the book and, and let yourself be convinced of that and, but, and play around you know, with the idea. If it's your professional area. Yeah. Or the area that, like, you make the most contribution to other people, the people around you, whatever is the thing that's, you, know, you could, being wrong about could be screwing you up the most. Right. Try to be honest about that. Yeah. Awesome. Well, thanks again for coming on. Is there any, do you want to point people no. to any um, like online things? I know your blog is well, Overcoming there, there's Bias. There's a web, web page called The Elephant in the Brain. And uh, I have a blog called Overcoming Bias. I tweet on Twitter at, at Robin Hansen. I have another previous book called The Age of M, Work, Love, and Life, and Robots Rule the Earth. It's I still have to read that. It's pretty self-explanatory, I, but I heard <laughs> it's you a pretty different book. Give a talk about that, um, but I still have to read it. Uh, the, the whole emulation thing is fascinating, consciousness, and you're, you, you've arranged to have your brain cryogenic. Uh, well, maybe frozen, your wife right? wants to talk about that one. Yeah. Awesome. Well, I'll, I'll, after I read that one, I'll, I'll contact you okay. again and we can have another conversation. All right. All right thanks again. Bye-bye. Bye. All right. Thanks for listening to this episode of Exploring Kodawari. If you enjoyed it, we hope you'll consider sharing it on social media and with friends. You can also help us out by leaving a rating and a review wherever you listen to podcasts. Those help us more than you would think. And if you'd like to help us out in a more substantial way, consider going over to our website to make a donation through PayPal. Links are in the episode notes for this. You can do this as a one-time donation or a recurring monthly donation. All of that support will help us to set aside time in order to create content for the podcast and the blog. And finally, please get in touch with us and say hi, either on social media or privately through email. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks for listening and see you next time.